So glad to have you here, and it's a real joy when Brooks asked uh, a year or so ago if we would host this at Christ Covenant. We're very glad to, to do so, and I apologize to those of you who are here from Christ Covenant. You just thought, finally, I can go to a conference and get a good sermon, and then I'm here again. So uh, I would say enjoy your coffee, but you just heard the announcement. You, you're not supposed to have any coffee in here. So thank you, Brooks. I'm really excited for what Radius is doing and have been uh, really blessed by being able to see firsthand what's going on there and try to make connections with Radius a little bit into the Presbyterian world. And great to be with you here. Brooks has asked if I would speak on this topic, what is not the mission of the church? It's not the book that Greg and I wrote. And uh, if, if you really like the book, this ha- has happened often. People come and say, wow, this, they'll send me an email. This section, this was really great. And I have to, you know, in my own heart go, well, that was Greg's section. But thanks, I'll, I'll smile. So all the good stuff is probably from Greg. But in that book, what is the mission of the church? We do talk about what is not the mission of the church. And it's important to have that conversation before Tomorrow, we'll come to what is the mission of the church. I'm actually going to talk a little bit in this talk about what is the mission of the church, but mainly about what it is not, because in particular on this subject, to just say what the mission is will generate very little controversy. By and large, we would agree that the mission of the church is encapsulated there in the Great Commission or the Great Commissions across the Gospels and in Acts. And indeed, I want to argue that that is a good place, in fact, the best place to find the answer to the question, what is the mission of the church? But you're not going to find Christians raise their hand and say, yeah, I'm sort of anti-Great Commission. Eh, I don't like that part of the Bible. Of course, everyone is for that. So to just say what the mission is without also doing the more difficult work of saying what it is not, that's where people will have some issues. I'm reminded of a story that an older pastor told me. He had a friend in the mainline church who was a very good minister, an evangelical minister who had a wonderful ministry in his congregation, and it was vibrant, and it was evangelical and it was missions-minded, and then this man in the mainline church, he retired, and another man came in, and sure enough, it only took two or three years, and the church became something completely different. And my friend was reflecting and said, how did this happen? He had such a long, vibrant ministry there, and he said this, I'll never forget. He said, well, the brother told them what was true but he didn't tell them what was false. And in our day in particular, where we need this clarity, we must endeavor to do the hard work, sometimes unpopular work, of saying not only what is true, but therefore what is not the right answer to the question. So what is and what is not the mission of the church? It may seem like a straightforward answer, what is the mission of the church, Here's Phil Riken, and I agree with Phil in this quote. He says, one of the last gifts Jesus gave to the church was a clear, unambiguous statement of its mission to the world. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples. The Great Commission, Riken says, is still in effect. It was first given to the apostles. It is a mission statement for Christians at all times and in all places. So we agree with that. But many others 
smart people, people with a, a good heart to serve Christ in the church, have offered a much different, more expansive view of the mission of the church. For example, Christopher Wright, who's very influential in missiological circles, says in his book, The Mission of God, quote, fundamentally, our mission means our committed participation as God's people at God's invitation and command in God's own mission within the history of God's world for the redemption of God's creation. Now, that's the sort of sentence that if you're just tracking along and you read it, you might say, okay, I like those words, participation, God's invitation, command, God's own mission for the redemption of God's creation. But if you slow down for a minute, you realize, well, that's quite different from saying the Great Commission. Wright argues that our mission is to participate with God in the redemption of God's creation. Reggie McNeil says, my answer is that the missional church is the people of God partnering with God in his redemptive mission in the world. We are to be an incarnational presence on the earth, working for those things that enhance life, opposing those things that steal life. Again, we're for things that bring life. Is that the mission of the church, to partner with God to bring life? One other book puts it this way. Partnership affirms that evangelism and social transformation are inseparable elements in Christ's kingdom that embraces all of creation. The goal is shalom, a sense of human welfare and well-being that transcends an artificial distinction between private and public worlds. Shalom, by its very nature, is rooted in justice and compassion. So is that the mission of the church? Shalom broadly conceived. Or here's one more. Gabe Lyons, God commissioned us to share his whole story and become conduits for him to bring healing to earth and its residents. Like a capstone to the story of God, Christians are called to partner in a restorative work so that the torch of hope is carried until Christ returns. Later, he says in this book, we are on a mission. So here it is, the mission, partnering with God to bring justice and mercy and peace and compassion and generosity into the world. We believe that in small ways, we are turning back the hands of time to give the world a glimpse of what the world looked like before sin entered the picture. So I wonder what you would think if you came across a definition of the church's mission like that. Because Christians read those things, and of course, we want healing. We want compassion. We want justice. Who doesn't want a picture of the world to turn back the hands of time so it looks more like the Garden of Eden? We must stop and examine biblically and theologically whether, in fact, that is the mission of the church, to partner with God for the redemption of all things that we might bring shalom and make the world more like Eden. So let's define a couple of terms. Mission. Mission does not appear in your English Bibles, but one argue it's a biblical word. One of the, the foremost missiologists is a man, it's a good name, Eckhard Schnabel. And he has massive volumes about the mission of the church. He has two 1,000-page volumes on early Christian mission. He has a 500-page work on Paul the missionary, one of the world's leading experts on mission in the New Testament and in the early church. 
And he makes this point forcefully that mission is a biblical word. Quote, the argument that the word mission does not occur in the New Testament is incorrect. The Latin verb mitere corresponds to the Greek verb apostolain, which occurs 136 times in the New Testament, 97 times in the Gospels, used both for Jesus having been sent by God and for the 12 being sent by Jesus. So you recognize that word, our English word apostle. The Greek word apostolain means to be sent. Our English word mission comes from the Latin word mitere, which also means to be sent. When you have a dismissal, it is being sent from a meeting, from a gathering. That's our word, mission. The apostles then, in the broadest sense of the term, were those who had been sent out. That's linguistically what it means, apostolate. So the first thing to note relative to mission or missionary is one who is sent. Now, there's more that we would want to say than that, but at least to start there, one who is sent from one place to another with a specific task. Now, instinctively, most of us have a general sense of what a mission is, whether it's mission impossible, the impossible mission force, or there was this cartoon, I don't think it's on anymore, but was on several years ago with a little bear, and he was, it was secret agent Oso. He was a bear named Oso, which is the Spanish word for bear, so it was sort of predicated on people not knowing rudimentary Spanish, but <laughs> this little yellow bear was given a mission in each episode, and he had to discover how many sides were in a triangle or count the number of eggs in a basket or something. It was a specific task that he was given to accomplish. And this is important when we talk about what is the mission of the church, because people will say, well, isn't the mission of the church the great commandment and the great commission? Well, of course, no one is against. We are all 1,000% for the great commandment, love God, love your neighbor. And yet that's different than the mission. When Jesus, before ascending into heaven, gave to the disciples their marching orders, he did not simply say, now go into the world and love God and love your neighbor. That is what we do. There are hundreds of commands in the New Testament that we are to fulfill as Christ's disciples. And yet a mission is something narrower. What is that task that will one day be completed, not simply every good thing you do as a Christian, but the mission for which God has sent us into the world. And then the other important word is church. What is the mission of the church? Because the question is not, what might your sense of calling be? What might your sense of mission be as a, a mom in this stage of life or as someone who feels called to help bring clean water to places in the world or someone who wants to make a difference in the political realm. No, we're talking about as the church, as the church gathered and as the church scattered, as the church organization and organism. And in particular, you think about your local church under the auspices of duly elected, ordained, installed leaders, what is the mission of that church? Or more collectively, 
the church globally or in a particular denomination or family of churches, what is it that that church should be accomplishing? Remember, the Greek word for church, ekklesia, by definition, the assembly of those who have been called out. It's actually important to remember, our fundamental identity as believers is not, first of all, those who are sent, but is, first of all, those who are called out, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. There are, within this called out group of people like us, some who will be sent for a specific task that is to accomplish for the sake of the church this great commission. Missionaries, therefore, are unique persons called by God, sent by the church to go out and further the mission where it has not yet been established. In his foreword to a book by the title, whose title I forgot to write down here, but it is, uh, I think, When Mission is Everything, uh, Jeff Lewis of California Baptist University notes that in his class on the global context of the Christian faith, 99% of his students, he says, think every Christian is a missionary. And 99% think he thinks that as well. He'll just ask at the beginning of class, how many of you think every Christian is a missionary? And then the second, how many of you think I think every Christian is a missionary? And almost everybody in all of his classes says, well, of course, every Christian is a missionary. Every member a missionary. Yet the argument of that book and one of the convictions of uh, the book that Greg and I wrote, and I know that Radius shares this as well, is that when we make everyone a missionary, we run the very real danger of truncating what a missionary is supposed to do, or just the opposite, making it so broad that everyone is a missionary, and therefore no one feels the specific importance and urgency to go and do the one task that is not accomplished that Christ gave us to do, namely to reach the nations with the gospel and plant churches. So I am a pastor in Charlotte. If you're new to the area, yes, it's always this humid in summer. This is a rather comfortable day outside, so stop complaining. It's... uh, (laughs) It's very humid, which is why it's very green. It's a lovely place. If you drive around the area, you'll notice there are actually a lot of churches. You think this is a big church? <laughs> not in Charlotte. It's not a big church. Just keep going down the road and you get more and more churches. So I don't make any apologies for being a pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina, but I am not a missionary. There are many, many good churches here. People are reached in the sense that they have access to the gospel. They have access to good, healthy churches. But one of my great burdens as a pastor at a church like this is that we would send out, send out ones, missionaries to go where Christ is not known. So in asking this question, what is the mission of the church? I just want you to hear clearly, we are not asking the question, what is every good thing a Christian might do? So in coming to a more specific definition of mission and missionary, usually the chief objection is, now, but wait a minute, 
you're saying that my backyard Bible school VBS here in town is not important? No. You're saying that the work I do in the hospital is not important? No, of course we're not saying that. There are 10 million good things that Christians do. But we're trying to answer a more specific question. What are we sending out missionaries into the world to accomplish? And it is the Great Commission. Or as Greg and I put it in the book, we argue there that the mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gathering those disciples into churches that they might worship and obey Jesus Christ now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. We're going to land back on that at the very end, but most of the time here in the 33 minutes and 14 seconds remaining is to give you a few examples of what is not the mission of the church before we'll land back on that definition from the Great Commission. So I want to take you to three texts. Now, these are texts in the Bible, so I hope you realize from the outset, we are all for these texts. (laughs) Uh, These are good texts. All the texts are good texts. They tell us very good and important things, but I want to show you how some have argued that these texts give us a much broader definition of the mission of the church. Three texts in particular. The first is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Sure, familiar to you, but you may want to turn there. The Lord says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Everyone agrees. This is a pivotal text, not just in Genesis, but in the whole plan of redemption After a host of curses and a curse motif in the first 11 chapters, well, chapters 3 through 11 in Genesis, now blessing and promise explodes on the scene. It is undoubtedly one of the central missiological texts in the Bible. But what does Genesis 12 tell us about mission? Again, Reggie McNeil argues that in the Abrahamic covenant, quote, the people of God are charged with the responsibility and enjoy the privilege to bless everyone. Or Christopher Wright says, it would be entirely appropriate and no bad thing if we took this text, Genesis 12, as the great commission. There could be worse ways of summing up what mission is supposed to be all about than go and be a blessing. Later, he says, quote, the Abrahamic covenant is a moral agenda for God's people as well as a mission statement by God. So in much of the newer missional literature, Genesis 12 is not simply a promise. It is more than a revelation of God's ultimate mission in redemptive history. It is a command for the children of Abraham to help the nations experience all the good gifts that God longs for them to enjoy. And therefore, the mission we are sent into the world to accomplish is to bless people. Now, what is the problem with that? Again, don't misunderstand me, lest you leave here and you say, what did you learn at Raiders? Well, I just learned that one pastor said, don't bless people. That was the main thing I got, just stop blessing people. Of course, blessing people is good, But the entire story of the patriarchs, 
demonstrates that God is doing the one blessing apart from any blessing strategy on the part of Abraham. There, there's no sense in which the patriarchs understood that to be their marching orders to then to go into Egypt and start blessing people. Uh, I just got done preaching through Genesis. I was in it for two years. And throughout the book, you see, usually despite themselves, God goes and blesses those who bless the chosen family, and he curses those who curse them. That's what we see. There is lots of blessing, but there's no evidence Abraham took that as a call to go and find ways to bless the nations. Of course, that doesn't mean it's wrong to bless people, but it does mean we should not take Genesis 12 as a moral agenda or another great commission. The call of Abraham was not a community blessing program. It's about God's unilateral promise to bless fumbling Abraham and bless the nations through faith in the promised seed that will come from his family tree. Aha, so here is the better missiological implication. You say, well, pastor, isn't that a great missionary text? Well, it is. But think about how do the nations inherit and enjoy the Abrahamic blessings? There's no evidence that they took it to be a plan to go out and help provide human services to people, but rather, so we go to Galatians chapter 3 and elsewhere in the New Testament, as they come to put faith in the promised seed of Abraham, therefore, they then enjoy all of those blessings. The emphasis in Genesis is on the chosen family as the recipients of God's blessing. It is a glorious missionary text where God announces his plans to bless the whole world. But the blessing is not something we go out to distribute by means of human flourishing. Rather, the Abrahamic blessing comes to those who trust in Abraham's offspring. This is Paul's understanding in Galatians 3.9 when, after quoting from Genesis 12.3, in you all the nations shall be blessed, he concludes... Quote, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So perhaps we could even agree with Christopher Wright when he says Genesis 12 is a kind of great commission to go out and bless the nations. But if we're going to say that, we need to put Genesis 12 with Paul's inspired interpretation and application of it in Galatians 3 where he says, you know how the nations get blessed? They get blessed when they put faith in the seed of Abraham. If there are missiological implications from Genesis 12, it is not so much go out and bless people, but rather go and call the nations to put their faith in Christ that they might receive the Abrahamic blessing. So that's one passage. Here's a second passage. Turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke 4, 16 through 21. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is Jesus. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. This is Luke 4, 16 through 21. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I came into the PCA a little over seven years ago and came out of a more mainline denomination, and I cannot tell you how many times I read in denominational magazine or heard at denominational meetings reference here to Luke chapter 4 that Jesus' ministry here gives to us the mission of the church. And the explicit teaching was, don't we see here in Jesus' sermon at Nazareth that his ministry and therefore our mission is one to bring liberty to the captives, one to help lift up the poor, one to bring about social transformation. Isn't that what Jesus is talking about? He came to bring the year of jubilee to the oppressed. He came to transform social structures, bring God's creation back to shalom. Our mission should therefore, here's a quote from one of these missiologists, should be, quote, to extend the kingdom by infiltrating all segments of society with preference given to the poor and allowing no dichotomy between evangelism and social transformation, Luke 4, 18 through 19, end quote. So that's how many people take Luke 4. Ah, here we see no dichotomy between evangelism, social transformation. The mission of the church is the ministry of Jesus, which is to be one who brings good news and transforms social structures. This common interpretation to Luke 4 misses at least two critical observations. First, it overlooks the actual verbs that Jesus reads from the Isaiah scroll. It says, as was his custom, this was not uncommon in synagogue, it would be given to a man like Jesus, especially one known as a teacher who might read from a passage. Here, this is the original mic drop, just reads it, boom, it's fulfilled, sits down, and there it is. But let's have a close reading of the text that Jesus reads from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord, so rests upon Jesus, he's the long-awaited Messiah, anoint him, and notice the verbs, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So almost all of the verbs there are verbs of speaking. Jesus says, I came to tell you something. The emphasis is not on, I came to do something, except insofar as the doing is accomplished through the speaking. He's going to proclaim good news to the poor. He's going to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. He's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So yes, Jesus' ministry is something of a model, not one-to-one correspondence, but something of a model for the mission of the church. And in that, we see that Jesus' ministry was one of proclamation. Now, what about the one verb, you're paying attention, that isn't a proclamation verb? 
It's where he says to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Well, that's interesting because it's actually the one thing in this list that Jesus never literally did. He did literally bring sight to the blind. He did literally proclaim these things. He didn't actually set those who were imprisoned physically free. In fact, remember why John the Baptist was confused as he's in prison and he's having a moment, a little crisis of faith, and he sends some of his men, go ask Jesus, are you the one that we're waiting for or is it another? And John's thinking that because he knows this passage from Isaiah and John's in prison and he's thinking, now, set at liberty, the captives, I'm a captive, I thought he was the Messiah, I'm in prison, what's going on? Because what John needs to learn is that though those may be ramifications at times, the captivity for which Christ came to set people free was a much worse captivity. It was the spiritual captivity to sin, flesh, and the devil. That is the captivity that he came to release people from. So let's pay attention to the verbs and how they function in this passage. Here's the second observation. We must allow the text to give us a proper understanding of the poor. It's a Greek word, tokos. And tokos in verse 18 is, is not without some reference to material poverty. There's a reason that Jesus talks about blessed are the poor because it often goes hand in hand that those who are materially poor can see their genuine need for help more than the materially rich. It is a greater danger to be the materially rich. And yet we must understand the poor as not the literal poor, just like captives blind and oppressed, are not necessarily the literal captives blind and oppressed. Because there's no instance, as we saw, of Jesus setting a literal prisoner free. Now, later in Luke chapter 4, remember, context is king. Jesus mentions two examples of the type of person who experienced the Lord's favor in the Old Testament. We don't have time to read it, but you can just see it down there after this passage. Two examples from the Old Testament. One is the widow of Zarephath. She was materially poor. And the other example is Naaman, the important Syrian general who humbled himself by dipping seven times in the Jordan River. These are the examples that Jesus gives. These are the quote-unquote poor to whom the good news came. One, literally materially destitute, one would have been one of the elite, rich, upper class of his day. But both are deemed the poor because they had a poverty in spirit that allowed them to see their need and humbly receive from the Lord his deliverance. Andreas Kostenberger and Peter O'Brien say, the poor to whom the good news is announced are not to be understood narrowly of the economically destitute, as most recent scholars have suggested. Rather, the term reflects more generally the dispossessed, the excluded, who were forced to depend upon God. So Jesus' mission laid out in Luke 4 was not a mission of structural change and social transformation, though some Christians as salt and light will work for that in other avenues of life. 
But the mission of the church, as understood in Jesus' own ministry, is to announce the good news of his saving power and merciful reign for all those who are brokenhearted enough to believe. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then a final text, John 20, 21, so-called Great Commission from John's Gospel. Jesus said to them again, here appearing to the disciples after his resurrection, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is often used as an explanation for incarnational ministry. And of course, on one level, that's true. If by incarnational, we mean we go, we live among people, we eat the food that they eat, and we learn the language that they speak. Wherever he leads me, I will follow. Whatever he feeds me, I will swallow, that old missionary adage. Yes, we do try to emulate that humility and living among the people to whom we bring the gospel. And yet, just want to throw up a caution that incarnational is likely not the best term to use to describe this humble approach to bringing the gospel. For many missiologists, incarnational ministry means that the mission of the church is one in which we serve as Jesus served. So the great John Stott benefited from many of his books and sermons and ministry, but he did have a different view of the mission of the church. He said, therefore, our mission, like Christ, is to be one of service. And so he said that evangelism and social action are, are famously the two wings of the bird or the two wings of the plane, and they are full partners in Christian mission. Stott argues that this crucial form of the Great Commission in John's gospel shows us that the simplest way to summarize the missionary enterprise, here's Stott, we are sent into the world like Jesus to serve. So is it the case that we are sent into the world like Jesus to serve? Again, note a couple of problems with that interpretation. One, it can be misleading to summarize Jesus' ministry as one of service. Again, serve is a good word. Remember what Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And then the very next phrase tells us the chief way in which he came to serve, he gave his life as a ransom for many. But stop means more than that. He means Jesus' mission was to meet human need, whether spiritual or physical. And again, we certainly affirm gladly Jesus showed compassion to countless multitudes in extraordinary ways. Nor do we want to suggest that meeting physical needs has no place in the work of the church. Titus 2.14, let us be zealous for good works. Ephesians 6.10, let us walk in good deeds prepared for us, But it is misleading to contend that Jesus' ministry focused on serving broadly conceived. In fact, here's what one book says, quote, every moment of his ministry is spent with the poor, sick, helpless, and hurting. 
Again, I want you to be discerning people. What, what would you think if you read that in a book or a blog post? Every moment of his ministry is spent with the poor, sick, helpless, and hurting. I hope you would know your Bibles well enough to know, well, that's not true. <laughs> I mean, it's, yes, he did that. We're, we're all for doing that. But sometimes Jesus wanted to be alone. Other times he was with rich people like Zacchaeus. Luke 8 tells us that the disciples were supported by rich women who were benefactors to their mission. In fact, I preached a, a sermon, and I don't, can't remember if I put it on, online somewhere and, and wrote it up, but a few years ago, on looking at Luke and Acts, where Luke most famously is where Jesus says the hardest things to the rich. And I think that's because Luke, Acts, both written by Luke, I think Luke is actually the evangelist to the rich. Remember, he's writing to most excellent Theophilus. He's writing to someone in the upper crust of society, which is why there are so many examples of the rich failing in Luke and Acts and so many examples of the rich who get it right. He's trying to show Theophilus, here's how you don't do it, and here's how you do follow Jesus as someone who is rich. It's just not the case to say that Jesus only spent time with the poor, the sick, the helpless, and the hurting. Think about what we find in the Gospels. Take Mark, for example. Yes, Jesus healed the sick, cast out demons. In fact, the three prongs of his ministry, teaching, healing, and exorcism. You see that in his quintessential first day of ministry in Capernaum in Mark chapter 1. Those are the three things he does over and over again. Healed the sick, cast out demons, and he taught. And yet, with those three prongs, what clearly drove his ministry was the proclamation of the gospel, the announcement of the kingdom, the call to repent. That's the the title page in Mark chapter 1. The kingdom of God, he came announcing and calling people to repent and believe, Mark 1.15. Jesus healed, he exercised demons out of compassion to be sure, but the bigger reason for his miracles was to testify to his authority and point to his unique identity. So don't miss this crucial fact. There is not a single example of Jesus going into a town with the purpose of healing or casting out demons. He never goes on a healing tour or an exorcism tour. He never says, now we're going to the next town to set up the healing booth. We're going to the next town where I'm going to do my exorcism ministry. Now, he does a lot of that along the way because he's moved with pity for human need, but he says explicitly, Mark 138, the reason he came out was that he might preach. After that first day of ministry in Capernaum, do you remember people are coming to him all throughout the night? Uh, And he's withdrawn in the morning to a desolate place to pray. And then the disciples come to him and they're just feeling great. This was first day of ministry. This was a big success. We got people lined up. We got people who need to be healed. And Jesus just says it or touches them or looks at them and commands. And it happens. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't each of us, if we had that ability, we'd say, I got I to gotta sure stay here until I get all these sick people healed. But Jesus said, I need to go to the next town. He understood what his mission was. And that's where he says, because the reason I came out in public ministry was to preach. He had compassion on people. 
He, he was moved by their suffering, but he realized if I just stay here and I just turn this into set up my healing shop, I'm going to have no sh- shortage of people. But it does not take a work of the Spirit of God to want problems to go away. It doesn't take a work of the Spirit of God to, to want sick people to get better. So Jesus did those things, and we don't have time, but you can trace throughout Mark's gospel, all throughout Mark's gospel, the reason for the miracles, the reason for the healing, the reason for the exorcism is to slowly reveal to the disciples and to the crowd who he really is. And so the first half of Mark's gospel is where you find most of the miracles and people respond and they're amazed, but they're confused and they don't know who he is. And then you get to the middle of Mark's gospel and you have that turning point where they say, who do people say that I am? And you're, you're, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And you know, it's there in the middle in Mark 8 where you have that strange story where Jesus has to do the, the double healing. Remember first he heals and then they, the man says, I, I see, see men, but it's like trees walking and Jesus has to go do it again. It's like, what happened, Jesus? Man, you need a Snickers bar or something. You lost your, your Messiah mojo. You had to go back and you didn't quite get it, get it right. I thought you were from, you know, Hufflepuff or Pump or whatever. This, you, know, you, you kids these days with your Harry Potter stories. I thought you had the magic wand to get this thing done. Well, you realize Jesus is teaching them a lesson because it's after the disciples acknowledge he's the Christ and then they totally don't understand what sort of Messiah he is and they're all jockeying for position and think, no, no, you're not going to suffer. That Jesus does this twofold miracle to say, look, disciples, you're like this man. You see, but you don't see clearly yet. You made this confession, but you see men like trees walking. And you have yet to have your eyes fully open to realize the true nature of who I am and what I'm about. The mission of Jesus is not service broadly conceived, but the proclamation of the gospel through teaching, the corroboration of the gospel through his miracles, and the accomplishment of the gospel in his death and resurrection. And then the other thing to say about John 20, 21, not only how we understand service, but going back to this question, how we understand incarnational ministry. I think D.A. Carson is right. We must protect the absolute uniqueness of what Jesus came to do. Carson, commenting on John 17, 18, concludes that when it comes to the mission of the disciples, quote, there is no necessary overtone of incarnation or of an invasion from another world. Instead, he says, we come face to face with the ontological gap that forever distances the origins of Jesus' mission from the origins of the disciples' mission. Now, the church, of course, is called the body. and Christ is the head. And that's chiefly uh, an analogy to help us understand how we're all interconnected with Christ as our leader and our authority. But you will try in vain to find marching orders that tell us to re-embody Christ's incarnational ministry any more than we are called to repeat his unique act of atonement. And here's why this is important. You say, well, are you just policing language? And man, I got to take down our websites and <laughs> incarnational ministry. Look, I know what you're trying to say. I think what you're trying to say is 
we're gonna go and we're gonna be humble and care for people and live in the neighborhood and, and all of that is very biblical. But here's what you need to think about. Does God call us to be avatars of Christ or ambassadors for Christ? Because if he calls us to be avatars, to be incarnations, to be another instantiation of Christ, well, not only does that get into some Christological problems, but it gets into some missiological problems. And that's where you have all of the language that I read at the very beginning about partnering with God. So God's, yes, God is doing more than saving souls. That's what everyone's, God isn't just saving souls, zipping you up to heaven. Of course not. His whole plan is to do nothing less than the renewal of the whole cosmos. But does he tell the disciples, hey, I'm redeeming all of creation, I'm renewing the cosmos, and I could use your help? Or does he say, here's this great act of redemption I'm doing, starting with individuals, and then the cosmos, therefore I need you to go tell people about it. He uses the language explicitly of ambassadors, not as those who partner with God to remake the world. People are, are never consistent with this. So they say, well, isn't, isn't the goal to bring heaven, you know, to bring the eschaton down here on earth? Well, they only think of that eschatology with heaven. They, they never think of their eschatology with hell. Because if you say, well, isn't God, we want to make reality now everything that God's going to do later. Well, he's going to punish the wicked and unbelieving in fire and judgment. And yet I never see that as a, you know, on people's incarnational ministry page. Because we instinctively know, rightly, well, that's not our task. God's going to do that at the end of the age. And so we ought to see that God is the one renewing this world, our task as ambassadors is to announce how they can safely get into the ark and be saved from God's judgment. Now, here's the one place where we do bring the eschatology to come to bear here on earth. It's called the church. That's why the Old Testament language of putting people out the camp, Paul uses to describe church discipline. That's why the language of sort of this Edenic bliss of having things in common and no one in want, that's supposed to be true in the church. The church is the outpost of the kingdom, or the church is the embassy of the kingdom. So you say, I want to bring heaven on earth. Great. And biblically, the way you do that is in your church. Now you say, my church ain't heaven. Yeah, I get it. There's a lot of already and not yet. But that's the goal, because what is an embassy in another country. If you go to another country and you want to go, you need help, you go to the American embassy, well, it's an outpost that exists in a foreign land, but they speak the language of their mother country, and they're there to help people who belong to that country, and they're there to advance the interests of that other country. That's what the church is, an embassy of the kingdom, a heavenly embassy here on earth to help advance the interests of our far greater country, in our truest home, our heavenly home. And the way to bring people into this land is through faith. That's how the kingdom comes. Kingdom doesn't come by lowering unemployment or planting trees. 
I'm all for both of those things. The kingdom comes when people repent and put faith in the king. So let me finish where I started with the Great Commission, which you'll hear more about in the talks to come. It makes sense we would ground our mission imperatives on Scripture's explicit commands. It makes sense that we would look to Jesus for our missiological direction because after all, the most important mission in the Bible is not our mission. It's the mission of the Father sending the Son. In fact, the very theological term mission originated with Trinitarian theology. They talk about the missions of the members of the Trinity. The first sending upon which all other sendings is predicated is the sending of the Father to send the Son. And as he gathers a people for himself, he then sends in order that the nations may know. The Great Commissions record Jesus' final words on earth. Their placement at the end of the Gospels or the beginning of Acts show their strategic importance, either summarizing everything that the gospel is about, or in the case of Acts, setting the literal table of contents for everything that is to come. These are no ordinary texts. And so we are right, as Christians have done for centuries, to find in the Great Commission the mission of the church. So let me repeat. The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship and obey Jesus Christ now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. In other words, the mission of the church is not equal to everything God is doing in the world or will do to redeem and renew the world, nor is the mission of the church equal to everything we do in obedience to Christ in love for our neighbors, or as salt and light in the world. The mission of the church is encapsulated in the Great Commission. So here's what Kostenberger says. I'll finish with this quote. The church ought to be focused in the understanding of its mission. Its activities should be constrained by what helps others to come to believe that the Messiah, the Son of God, is Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to that end. Give us ears to hear the rest of this morning and these two days together that we may be motivated as senders, as goers, as givers, as prayer warriors for the accomplishment of this great task. In Jesus' name, amen.